Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B Y T E.com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hey, friends, some very exciting news. I've got a new book coming out. It comes out in March, but copies are available now or very soon. It's called From the Left, A Life in the Crossfire. And just like it sounds, it's my story. All about uh, growing up in a small town in Delaware, how I ended up on national television from that little start, which took me through the seminary, studying for the priesthood to California, working for Jerry Brown, doing TV in L.A., coming back to Washington for CNN for Crossfire and the Spin Room on MSNBC with Pat Buchanan. It's been a great run, a lot of fun, met a lot of great people, had a lot of interesting experiences, and I wanted to share it all with you, tell that story. And we do here, Bill Press from the left, copies available right now. You can order a signed copy. If you go to our website, BillPressShow.com, with a 40% discount, the book will cost you only $16.79, BillPressShow.com. And the first 100 of you who order uh, from the left will also get a free signed copy of one of my earlier six books. You know, to sum it all up, uh, the great Henry Miller once said, so whether the world is going to pieces or not, whether you are on the side of the angels or the devil himself, take life for what it is. Have fun, spread joy, and confusion. I've tried to do that all of my life. This is the story of it. Bill Press from the left. Get your copy today. Go to BillPressShow.com. Everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show. Live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey everyone, I'm Alexi McCammond. I'm an editor and reporter at Axios here in DC, and I'm filling in for the wonderful Bill Press, who we are sad not to have with us this morning, but I'm very excited to be here with my friends Peter and Ray. A very good morning to all of you. Um, we're going to talk about a lot today. Mostly the um, unfortunate school shooting in Parkland, Florida. We're going to be talking about gun laws and what to expect next from Congress on that front. We'll also be talking about DACA and Congress failing to come together on any sort of proper immigration solution. Um, we saw just yesterday how the debates and the bills were not even getting off the ground. So we'll give you the latest on that and what to expect moving forward, especially considering the March 5th deadline for DREAMers. Thousands, hundreds of thousands of kids uh, are in danger of deportation. So we'll give you what to expect on that front. And we'll also be giving you the latest from inside the White House, the sort of palace intrigue stories that you're wondering what the heck is going on with Steve Bannon, who's not even in the White House anymore, but is still here in D.C. on Capitol Hill. What's going on with John Kelly, Rob Porter, Donald Trump? We'll give you all of that good stuff. Um, but first... 
This is the Full Court Press. Yes, indeed. Just a couple of other stories making news here on this Friday. Well, I, I do this every day, and today is sort of a sad day to do it because I always give the Winter Olympics medal count update. Yesterday in the Olympics, we didn't win a single. We didn't win a single medal. Oh no, not one. Now we had sort of pinned our hopes on Michaela Schiffer, and she was supposed to win in the slalom it's her best event and she said that she was going to win five medals in this olympics that is not going to be the case she failed to get a medal there lindsey uh jacobels also failed a medal in the snowboard cross figure skater nathan chen did not win in the short routine adam ripon performed but he also did not make the podiums no medals for the united states Sad. no medals at all yeah right there's always next time I try to not, like, I try to curb my enthusiasm for the Olympics because I think the Olympics are inherently kind of not great as, a, as like, just like what they do and all that. But I right. do get totally swept up in it. Uh, <laughs> so just to give you an update on where we stand, uh, Germany still in the lead with nine gold medals. Uh, Norway is on top with the most medals combined. They have 19 combined medals. Where do we stand? Well, we stand exactly where we stood yesterday. Five gold medals, one silver, two bronze for eight total medals in the Winter Olympics. Uh, moving on, uh, they say money can't buy happiness, right? You've heard this. Sure. Money can't buy me love, I guess. Is that the whole thing? <laughs> anyway, there's a new study out from the University of Virginia and Purdue University that says, well, maybe money could actually buy us happiness. They take a look at uh, poll data from millions of people and found that the optimal income for a lifetime of satisfaction is about $95,000 a year in earnings. Wow. And if you make that much money, you can be happy. Who would have thunk it would be so easy? Yeah. So all you got to do is get almost $100,000 a year. So everyone should go to work today and ask for that salary Look, and I'll, cite this study. I deserve to be happy. <laughs> yeah, I deserve do you want this. me to be happy? Now, here's the wrinkle. Uh, if you have children, you need more than that. Mm -hmm. They didn't specify how much, but you do need more than ju just the 95000 Wow. It's science. Yeah, who am I to argue <laughs> yeah. with science, right? That's what you should tell your boss when you go in today. Uh, and speaking of children, McDonald's has pledged that they will make their Happy Meals more nutritious. We've seen McDonald's do this a couple of times in history, but they announced yesterday that by the end of 2020, at least 50% of Happy Meals listed on menus worldwide will have caps of 600 calories with only 10% of the calories coming from saturated fat, lower sodium, and 10% of calories coming from added sugar. So basically what this means is they're going to get rid of cheeseburgers in the Happy Meal unless customers request them. They're going to reduce the size of the fry order, and they're going to add a grilled chicken option. And no chocolate milk, right? And no chocolate yes, milk. Yes, no chocolate milk. In other words, children are going to hate it. Yeah, they're going to starve. Children are going to starve. <laughs> Thanks, McDonald's. Children are going to starve. <laughs> On your radio, on TV, and online. This is the Bill Press Show. 
I'm Alexi McCammond, a reporter and editor with Axios, filling in for Bill Press this morning. We've got a lot to talk about, um, including school shooting in Parkland, Florida, what the heck is going on with immigration in Congress, which it seems like it's changing uh, every half hour these days on the Hill, uh, and also a look into the White House and what's going on there. We have some great guests joining us today. First up will be Dara Lind, who's a senior reporter at Vox. Next will be um, Joe Perdicone, who is a political reporter for Business Insider. And we have A.D. Lair, who works at Think Progress as a breaking news and politics reporter. So we have great, great guests to talk you through all these things. Um, but first, before I came in this morning, uh, I was telling you, Peter, that I went through the New York Times profiles. They did a separate profile for every victim of the 17 victims in the Parkland school oh. shooting. And... You know, I will admit, as I did to you earlier, that, like, I have sort of tried, and you should never do this, especially as a reporter, but I've sort of tried to, like, stay out of this news story as much as possible just because it gets so upsetting. And and this morning I was like, you know, that's one way I can honor these kids is just by reading through these profiles. And, you know, it's just heartbreaking even reading about it in text that, like, these kids were 14 and 15 years old. I think yeah. the oldest student was 17 or 18. It's, it, I, I have the same struggle, by the way. Like, I, yeah. I sort of feel like we work in this business. We should be as informed as we can. And, and I think a lot of times that means we have to look at stuff that we don't like looking at. Right. Um, right. But I really tried to avoid this myself. Um, I knew the details. I don't think that my mind needs to be... Uh, I don't think I need to be convinced anymore that guns are bad. Right. Um, right. And, I, again, I was just reading these stories, and some of these kids, you know, it's just like you really think about how much of their future was ahead of them. Yes. And you think of, and you hear some of the stories about one of the kids uh, who was holding the door open for other classmates to rush out and get away from the gunman, and while he was holding the door open for other people to get to safety, he himself was gunned down and didn't make it out. Right. Um, and that was a trend throughout some of these profiles is like, you know, the foot, the assistant football coach and yeah. one of the teachers who were like putting themselves in front of the gunman to save their students. And it's like in those moments, like I have no idea what I would do. But in those moments, like I can only imagine what these teachers were thinking. I, like, I can't imagine what I would do. And I'm a grown man. Right. Uh, for these 14, 15, 16 year olds to um, sacrifice themselves right. in that way. Right. I mean, my God. Right. It's just brutal to read about. And again, it's like, why? You right. know, like, I, I, I saw, one of the, I, I read some of the stuff, uh, some of the profiles of the victims, and, and, and I watched some of the coverage of it yesterday, and there was a particularly heartbreaking moment where one of the mothers of, uh, she, one of her daughters was, was, was killed. Uh, and this attack, and she's just screaming at the mm, camera. Yeah, I saw that too. What are we going to do? Right, right. And then some of the students who survived the shooting were on CNN after it happened saying a similar message, sort of asking and calling on lawmakers to do something. They were saying, point blank, your condolences and prayers and apologies aren't enough. We need you to take action in the form of legislation. Yeah, and, and look, like, me personally, my approach to guns is probably a little more radical than most people's, right? <laughs> like I say, if you want to burn all the guns, melt them all down, that's fine. 
I don't need a gun. You don't need a gun. Yeah. Nobody needs a gun in this country, right? Like, if you want to hunt recreationally because your mm-hmm. your your grandparents did, your parents did, okay, right. that's fine. First right. of all, maybe you should learn how to use a bow and arrow. But also, if you want to have a gun for that, fine. Right. But in my eyes, take them all away. Yeah. I don't care. Yeah. I have. I, I I I don't care at all. But. That aside, even if you're someone who believes in the Second Amendment strongly, right, we elect these people to to do something, right? right? And it's not like we can say, well, what we've been doing is working because it's just not. Right. I think probably the most read uh, article that The Onion has ever published is the one yes. that they put out. Every time there's a school shooting, yes. they re-up it that just says there's essentially I'm, I'm paraphrasing, but like there's nothing we can do, says nation where this is the only nation where this yeah. routinely happens. Right. Right. Yeah. I think um, there was something the writer behind that headline wrote something the other day that was like I, when I wrote this, I was not thinking we would be reusing it this many times. And here we are. I see it all the time. Right. Every time there's a shooting, I see someone re-up it. Right. Um, I'd love to play the clip I think we have of the local sheriff in Florida naming all the names of the victims. Um, if you hadn't been, had a chance to read the profiles of all of them, I would highly encourage you all to go to the New York Times.com yeah. and find those. Um, but here's a list of all of the students who unfortunately lost their lives in this shooting. Carmen Centrop, Meadow Pollock, Peter Wang, Nicholas Dwarette. Christopher Hickson, my very, very, very special friend who I'll miss, Aaron Feist, Luke Hoyer, Alana Petty, Jamie Gutenberg, Martin Duque Anguiano, Alyssa Alhadef, Helena Ramsey, Scott Beagle, Joaquin Oliver, Carol Loughran, Gina Montalto, and Alexander Schachter. May they rest in peace, and may God comfort their families. It's just uh, a horrifying situation for anyone to be in, and I think reading the profiles, hearing the names, gives it obviously a more human aspect for anyone who is maybe not paying attention. Like, I haven't been to really realize sort of the gravity of the situation. And the next natural step is thinking, like, what is Congress going to do about this? in our newsletter this morning, Axios AM, we have in there quoted a source who is close to Trump who talked to my colleagues, Jonathan Swan and Mike Allen, who basically this person said that Trump takes pride in being not just the law and order president, but the safety and security president. And, you know, he sort of pointed out that given that in his remarks, in Trump's remarks about this shooting, he never once mentioned the word guns, and he isn't talking about gun control, but instead he's sort of talking about mental health issues. And I think we have a clip of Trump um, talking about how this is related to mental illness. With state and local leaders to help secure our schools and tackle the difficult issue of mental health. That's certainly part of this. hundred percent, a hundred percent. I won't take that away from any of the Republicans who who uh, mentioned this. Right. But I, uh, first of all, I am of a certain age. 
<laughs> okay, I am. Uh, I, I've been around for a little while. Yeah, it was twenty years ago. I remember I was a freshman in college when Columbine happened, mm. and we as a nation saw this sort of unspeakable tragedy. And I mean, I don't mean to belittle Columbine, but like it's nothing compared to what we're seeing now. Right. I mean, nothing. Right. We've only got, it's only gotten worse. Yeah. Yeah. And you would think, I mean, especially in high school when it happened, like you would think that after that happened, Congress would come together and say like, okay, we, this is like insane. Yeah. We have to do something about this. Like, look, I, I realize that this is sort of a cheap argument to make, right? But like, you have got to feel as a parent, that you can send your children to school and not worry about them getting shot. Right. Full stop. Right. Right? And, like, I have seen – I have a a child who's turning 13 tomorrow. Mm. Uh, I have seen how schools have changed in the last couple of years. You used to just be able to walk in and talk to – you know, like, if you had an appointment or whatever. Then there were some metal detectors that started going in. And then you have to give an ID before you have to. So, like, we are turning our schools into fortresses. Right. And still, this happens. I remember five years ago, a little over five years ago, after Sandy Hook, uh, I remember listening uh, to uh, Wayne LaPierre from the NRA, who coined the now infamous line, the only thing that can stop a bad guy with a gun, is a good guy with a gun. And as we pointed out on yesterday's show... There were armed police officers at this school in Parkland, Florida. They were there. Right. And a lot of schools have that. I don't mean to take away from the argument of mental illness or mental health because those are important things. But I think it's naive to assume that all of these mass shootings are due to simply mental illness. I mean- you, we just heard Trump talk about tackling mental illness, but he didn't even mention gun control. He right. didn't mention gun sense laws. I mean, that's like saying only America has people that have mental health problems. It's just it's a false argument. Well, also, wasn't it nearly a year ago, soon after he became president, that he rolled back those Obama era yep. regulations, barring those living with mental illnesses from buying guns? And like, I mean... Obviously, I guess that was a different time than it is this week, but like that doesn't mean that we didn't have the stats and the information to support something that wouldn't lead to him rolling back those regulations. And so it's sort of like, how can you talk about the mental health issue when you're rolling back those regulations? And then also, like you said, Ray, like not even talking about what that means for gun control. Like they have to go hand in hand. I would like, because I think that part of the problem here is that both sides of the gun issue, right? Guns are good and we are entitled to them as Americans mm-hmm. and guns are bad and they sh- we, we should have less of them. Yeah. I think that both sides of that issue have gotten so cemented in their own ways and they have figured out ways to make whatever argument work for them, right? And mm-hmm. I, I just don't know what we do to change that. But on the mental rolling back of buying guns with, for people with mental illness... I would like to see someone defend that. Yeah. Like, what sense does that, what practical sense is there? Right. Other than, well, Obama did it, therefore it must be bad. Right, right. Yeah. And, and like, then it goes down to the state level as well. Like, I was reading an article the other day that basically said it's easier to buy an AR-15 in Florida than it is a handgun or something. And I was like, this is, like. That's believable. Who 
need even folks who go hunting. I think it was Joe Scarborough on Morning Joe was talking about this. Like his friends from back home, he grew up in various southern states, and sure. he was like, "We went hunting." They would take their kids hunting when they were five years old, and even they are now like, "No one needs an AR-15." I definitely don't even need one to go hunting. I- I've gone hunting one time in my life, but I've been around it. I was around it when I was growing up. I grew up in the South, Alabama and South Carolina. I, mm-hmm. I have, I'm not redneck, but I'm like 15% redneck. <laughs> uh, but like, look, I grew up around guns. Yeah, 100%. Yeah, I never ever saw an AR-15. You don't go hunting with an AR-15 unless you want to turn a deer into a fine mist. Mm. Yeah. Like, there's yeah. just no reason to have an AR-15. There is no reason for anybody, any civilian, to have an AR-15 full stop. Right. That's it. Right. Right. And so I guess we'll continue to see how Trump talks about this. I mean, the difficult thing for him and Republicans at large, but especially for Trump, is we've seen how the NRA has supported him and not wavered in their support forever and ever since Donald Trump has been interested in running for office. I mean, they were one of the only groups and Republican entities who stood by him after the excess Hollywood tape. Yep. He certainly is not forgetting that when everyone else was abandoning him for however long they decided to in the end. Um, they continue to throw money, millions and millions of dollars. I'm sure you have all seen the articles and tweets circulating showing which Republican lawmakers have received the most from the yeah. NRA. Millions, millions, millions. millions. Uh, sometimes tens of millions. Yeah. I, I mean, I think they gave Donald Trump like 21 million just during the election. Yeah. And at a certain point, there has to be a lar- an even larger conversation about how that is influencing policies if at all and like what their relationship is going to be what their stance as an organization will be when they're seeing these things happen you know we had an interesting conversation yesterday with uh congressman john yarmouth from kentucky which you can go listen to on our podcast just look for the bill press show on itunes or wherever you get your podcast but uh he uh has been a congressman in kentucky for a while now he has proudly run with an f rating from the NRA. Mm-hmm. The NRA ranks all these different races, right? Mm-hmm. They give grades on all these different races. And John Yarmouth has had an F <laughs> every time that he's run. And he made the point that when we talk about the NRA, we're not necessarily talking about the gun owners of America because the gun owners of America, they really don't care mm. if we strengthen uh, rules on semi-automatic weapons of war. Right. right, like they want to have their rifle so that they can go hunt mm-hmm. with their kids and their grandkids, mm-hmm. and that's fine. Right. Um, there are also other people that want to have their handgun um, for concealed purposes, which I don't dis- which I don't agree with. But also, we can have that conversation. Right. Like I'll listen to that conversation. Um. But. When we're talking about AR-15s and we're looking at the deadliest shootings that we've had here in, in America over the years, I'm like we, we show me where an AR-15 has done some good right. in the hands of a civilian. Right. We have so many instances to point to in which these guns are just used for terrible, terrible mass shootings. Yeah. And, I, and I think it was ABC News or CNN, I should know this. Um, I think it was last night they did an interview with a handful of the students who survived the shooting. And this one young woman was like, if you're 18 or 19 years old and you can't even buy, legally buy a glass of alcohol, right? Like an alcoholic drink, how on earth are you able to purchase a gun? 
totally normal country we live in. It's just like, <laughs> you know, and it's hard. Like, I totally understand and will acknowledge that there are so many facets to this argument that, like, both sides can use to make. I just think that, like, there, we are now in, like, a very unique moment where Trump, again, like, wants to make himself, like this source said, the, not only law and order president, but the safety and security. If you want to be the safety and security president, then, like, you need to start talking explicitly about gun control and yeah. not making comments in which you're just not even using the word gun. It, yes. It, yeah, yeah, 100%. 100%. And I think something else that's missing from the conversation is this key phrase that Trump and all of his friends love to throw around is terrorism. This is yes. a form of terrorism. It's domestic terror. Look, so not only does he fail to mention that this is not only a mental illness issue, it's also a gun issue and a domestic terror issue. Mm-hmm. When I wake up in the morning and... I send my kids off to school, or I text with my kids before they go to school, because it's 2018 now. <laughs> um, I don't worry about anybody from the list of the banned countries blowing right. up my kid's school, right? Like, if we go to the mall or a movie theater, I don't right. worry about someone with a suicide vest right. coming in and blowing us up. I worry about an American with a semi-automatic weapon, yeah. Excuse me, multiple semi-automatic weapons, um, with uh, an axe to grind, uh, killing as many people as they can. Right. That's what worries me. Right. Yeah. And you can't go anywhere anymore. You can't go to a nightclub. You I can't know. go to an outdoor I concert know. in Las Vegas. You can't go to school. You can't go to the movies. Right. It happens everywhere. Right. Like we live in a country that just accepts it and again whether you're a republican who believes in the second amendment or you're someone who is violently opposed to guns you just have to say like god we can do better right like we can do better there are things that can be done yeah while still preserving the second amendment yeah well and the interesting thing is well maybe not surprising considering trump has flip-flopped on various policy stances but before he ran for office he was in favor of gun control right and obviously that position evolved when he started running and you know those close to him told axios that there is no way he's going to change his mind on gun control now like he's not going to flip again which i think is why we continue to hear about mental illness um but i think in that clip we played earlier when he talked about mental illness he also mentioned something about safety programs which like there was reporting yesterday that his 2019 budget proposal cuts something like 25 million from school safety programs specifically designed for situations like this. Yeah. So it's like whether it's rolling back these Obama era regulations, preventing those with mental illness from buying guns or proposing to slash the budget by a significant amount of money that is for um, school safety programs. There's got to be a larger conversation or he's got to come forward and say something about what he actually wants to do and what he thinks about the issue moving forward. It can't just be a blanket blame on mental illness. It has to be like, I believe for this reason that it is a mental illness issue and this is what we're gonna do to solve it in the case of gun control. And look, this is not um, new ground that I'm gonna bring here, right? But like, when it's a white guy, it's mental illness. He was very disturbed. He had some problems and we can't blame, you know, the contributing factors like he's just a very sick man right when it's uh someone who doesn't have white skin we have to ban (laughs) everybody from the country that this guy came from yeah 
Like it's a horrifying double standard. Oh, it's, it's terrible. I mean, it's terrible. It's and it terrible. brings up the larger question of like, okay, fine. Donald Trump obviously has a major role in this, and we need to hear more from him. But what about the FBI? They were apparently tipped off yeah. multiple times about this kid. And, like, I, I don't work at the FBI. I obviously don't know the exact protocol for what happens when you get these call-ins or these threats or you're tipped off to these things. But, like, if he said what he is reported to have said, which is that he wanted to be a professional school shooter someday, yeah. like, at what point do we just say, like, that's clearly— if even if they're joking, like, that is not a normal joke for a kid to make. So perhaps we should— have a conversation with him. Yeah. Yeah, I mean there were multiple failings on on multiple uh levels, right? And um yes, the FBI screwed up. It, it appears that right. way, right? If we if, if we see these stories. Um but it would be a shame to see politicians make that the fall guy. Mhm. Mm uh because yes, that needs to be addressed. Right. But that wasn't the problem. Right. Right. Well, and I think one interesting thing is, like, seeing how Republicans will certainly continue to push their view on guns and gun laws and not really change. But there was one interesting thing that I'll say before we pivot to immigration when Derek gets here. And Sessions said something about reversing the mass shooting trends. I think we have. Jefferson Sessions? Yeah, sure. Yeah, let's do that. <laughs> In this situation that we're seeing just cannot continue. And we will take such action as we're able to take. We've got to reverse these trends we're seeing uh, in these shootings. So some quick trends. <laughs> Obviously, the death tolls from these mass shootings are rising. As of a decade ago, the deadliest shootings in modern U.S. history had killed 16, 21, and 23 people. Now it's 32, 49, and 58. We're not getting any better. We're not. We won't get any better. And Those numbers will continue to climb. They will continue to climb, and the profiles will get longer, and the segments about you know what to do about this moving forward will get longer. And Jeff Sessions, it is great that he is saying that we should reverse these trends. Sure, like, yeah. Those are the facts. Those are the trends, right? Like That is a significant increase in death tolls. And I don't know like at what number people on both sides of the aisle, will actually start to treat this as a gun control issue and not just talking about it in a general way. Yeah, that's a... You know, like, what number? 32, 49, and 58. 58 is a lot of people. 16, which was the lowest number from a decade ago. Yeah. Like, that is a lot of people. It's remarkable. When it's, it's a school full of tiny, essentially babies right. being shot right. and that doesn't move the needle, I have very little hope. Right. I mean, I, I hate to say this. I mean, shock. I'm a little cynical about a lot of things. Um, but I have not. I, I don't think. I don't think that we're going to see a Republican president, a Republican Congress, a Republican Senate make any real significant moves on gun control and part of it is because they like to fancy themselves strict constitutionalists and the second amendment is right their life right and part of it is that they are so drunk with money from the nra that they just can't afford the the hit 
Yeah, well, and, and Trump's base loves when he speaks about guns and allowing people loves to speak. It. They just get so riled up, and why on earth would he make them upset about that now? Yeah. Especially when he hasn't favored gun control in a very long time, and especially since he's been running for office. I, I made this point yesterday, and I realize that this is sort of a stretch, right? But also, maybe we could one day get here in this country? Uh, because you saw all of the uh, Democrats saying, oh, well, if Republicans got money from Steve Wynn, they've got to give it back because right. he's now it's now come out that he's a terrible person. And Republicans saying that any Democrats that got money from Harvey Weinstein, they got to give that money back because he's a terrible person. And we weren't talking about a ton of money. I mean, relatively speaking. I mean, mm -hmm. it was a lot of money. Mm -hmm. But, it, I mean, for politics, it was not that much money. But right. you look at the millions of dollars, millions of dollars that are pouring in from these goblins at the NRA to these Republican politicians. I think we should point the finger at them and say, you took 3.3 million, 21 million, 2 million from the NRA. You don't get to say a word about gun control ever again. Yeah, I'm curious to see how many people Start bringing that up. I'd love to see Democrats sort of make that argument. You don't yeah. have a credible leg to stand on. Therefore, shut your mouth. Don't talk. Don't talk about gun control because you are bought and paid for. We already know where you stand on this. You're not going to actually try and solve a problem. You're just trying to please an audience of one. Yeah. We'll see what Democrats uh, come up with. But uh, we are going to take a quick break, and we'll soon be talking about immigration with Daryl Lind from Vox. Same great show, new great channel. Stream live video at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Alexia McCammond, editor and reporter with Axios, and we are joined now by Dara Lind from Vox, who is a senior reporter, talking all about immigration. How are you? I'm. It's been a long week. Yeah. <laughs> a long It's been week. a long, short week. Yes. The Senate <laughs> left last night complaining that they'd wasted a whole week on immigration. If you look at the actual timing, they had spent a whole two and a half days. Oh but it's, it did. It, it felt like a very long two and a half days. I, someone the other day was like, the news cycle, not so bad. And I was like, oh, oh, yes, no. <laughs> it's always very bad. But this week in particular with immigration, because I think there was, correct me if I'm wrong, maybe a little bit of hope at the start of the week? Yeah, no, I... Uh, even in the middle of the week, we were at the point where, you know, a plan got dropped Wednesday night by the group of bipartisan senators who had been meeting since the government shut down last month, you know, calling themselves the Common Sense Coalition. Right. That was where, if you remember the news stories last month where Susan Collins had a talking stick that she was handing around, like that was the <laughs> yeah. talking stick caucus. And they had finally come up with a deal that actually, you know, for one thing was surprisingly uh, dovish on immigration. It was to the left of actually the Graham-Durbin plan that the president panned in January rather famously. Um, but also, it had a surprising number of Republicans on board. There mm. were eight Republican co-sponsors. And it was very, it was not exactly expected to see somebody coming up with a new proposal so late in the game that was actually, you know, that had a critical mass of support and that it was assumed Democrats would support. Right. And and then it just all fell apart very quickly. Um, Considering, so it's interesting that you say that that common sense coalition's plan, immigration plan, was a little more to the left of Graham Durbin. Why then would so many more Republicans support that? Or would so many Republicans support it? So I think a lot of it is in the Senate, especially on immigration, 
there are just a lot of legislators who don't under who like don't follow the issue on a day to day basis. They have instincts, but they don't necessarily they're not in the weeds on stuff. And so who you can get on board is often a matter of who you have in the room, because then you're talking through the issues with them. They feel that they have buy in. You know, there was a certain amount of coverage yesterday that Bob Corker didn't vote for, you know, some of the more dovish proposals. And he had voted for comprehensive immigration reform in 2013, but he voted for it because he had been in the room negotiating this big border security package. So I think some of it is buy-in. But I also think that what we learned this week is that Republicans in the Senate still haven't gotten on board with the Donald Trump platform that immigration is largely an issue of legal immigration, that restricting Mm -hmm. legal immigration is really important. And so many of them kind of got turned off by these very ambitious plans the White House has been pushing to cut legal immigration and reacted. And at the same time, their primary concern politically and the reason that they wanted to deal with immigration to begin with is that they don't want bad press in their states about immigrants who have been protected under the Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals program, losing their jobs and getting deported. So right. they were willing to not only you know, legalize and allow them to get citizenship, but they were also concerned about headlines about their parents. And so there was a provision in there that actually would have restricted ICE agents much more than they've been restricted by law at any time and right. you know, actually bring enforcement down to the point of the end of the Obama administration, which is to the left of where the Republican Party explicitly has been and probably to the left left of where if you, you know, ask Susan Collins her ideal immigration policy. But it was an interesting way to kind of get at the political problem that many Republicans may not want to legalize it, mm-hmm. unauthorized immigrants, but they certainly don't want to see headlines where people who have been in the U.S. for 20 years and haven't committed any crimes have, are getting deported. Right. And that's sort of what you mentioned in this great piece you have on Vox titled The Immigration Battle Donald Trump Has Already Won, which... The most contentious immigration question facing Congress right now is about legal immigration. Absolutely. Right. So the if you look at the bills that the Senate voted down yesterday, um, there were two kind of narrower bills that would have legalized people who are currently eligible for the DACA program, although that's about to start to, to continue winding down uh, or who would have been eligible but who didn't apply. Uh, and some some kind of border security something. There was a bill sponsored by John McCain and Chris Coons that would have just been, we'll study the border. <laughs> and then there was the, you know, the kind of Collins Common Sense Coalition bill that would have given the $25 billion for the border wall that Donald Trump is asking, although it would have put, you know, restrictions. It would have required DHS to kind of show its work. Mm-hmm. Um, but both of those were were fairly narrow, you know, DACA for border deals. And then there was the... Uh, Chuck Grassley-sponsored bill, which is based on the White House's own framework, uh, which the president, you know, had endorsed and the White House had a lot of press calls pushing this week, which went down in flames. You know, it it got 60 no votes. The thing is that in the House, the bill that conservatives are pushing Paul Ryan to whip for is uh, very similar in terms of the cuts it would place on legal immigration. And so to I the think Chuck what, Grassley. Yeah, to mm-hmm. the Grassley bill, to the White House framework as well. And so I think what we're seeing here is that, you know, for a generation, Republicans were saying legal immigrants are great. We love legal immigrants. This is a very important part of American heritage. Uh, most actual Republican base voters don't feel that way. They're not it's they don't draw a hard distinction between legal and unauthorized immigrants. Their feelings about immigrants are 
cut across different lines. Mm. Um, and so when Donald Trump kind of came out and started saying that Mexico wasn't sending its best people and not making strong distinctions, uh, that resonated with them much more. And so it, Republicans in Congress have struggled to get there. House Republicans have gotten there a lot more quickly, I think, because House Republicans are, I think, a little bit more responsive to Trump and to Trumpism. Right. Uh, Senate Republicans just really aren't there yet. And it's right. not clear whether that's something that they're going to reconcile themselves to or whether they're going to continue to uh, act as if their party is still the party of, you know, like high walls and open doors. Right. So it's interesting that you draw those lines between House Republicans and Senate Republicans and where there's even some tension in what they want. Can we do a quick breakdown for everyone listening of like what Democrats want on immigration, what Republicans want, and then what Trump wants? Uh, I can answer the first and last. Okay. <laughs> what Republicans want has always been the question here, right? It's yeah. why we didn't know going into this week what on earth the Senate would do because mm -hmm. so many Republicans other than Donald Trump have been very cautious in making any demands and have kind of been waiting to see where the winds blow. Right. Democrats, on the other hand, have been extremely clear and consistent, right? They want protection, legalization and a path to citizenship for dreamers broadly construed, right? For the generation of unauthorized immigrants who came to the U.S. as children. They want ideally legalization for un other unauthorized immigrants as well. They're not pushing for that right now, right. but they don't want anything that's going to make that harder down the road. And they don't want cuts to family-based immigration in particular. They also ideally want some kind of guarantee of protection of diversity in immigration so that they're, you know, so that people, countries that don't send many people to the U.S. don't get locked out. Um, but they're very concerned about provisions that would make it harder for people to bring their parents or siblings or children, even if those children are adults, you know, they view the nuclear family as kind of nuclear family relationships rather than mm -hmm. one husband, one wife and children, which is the way that Republicans are increasingly defining the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. um, the White House definitely wants cuts to legal immigration, theoretically wants some kind of protections for current DACA recipients, although really the last week has kind of shown that it's they're not really willing to spend political capital on the latter without the former. Right. Donald Trump wants a border wall. Donald Trump's Department of Homeland Security doesn't care much about a border wall. They really want to change asylum law to make mm -hmm. it easier for border agents to detain and deport people who are coming to the U.S. seeking asylum, especially unaccompanied children who are seeking legal status in the U.S. So it's it results in this kind of smorgasbord of what are getting called trade-offs. Right. Um, you know, some of which are about enforcement, some of which are about restrictions on legal immigration. And so this entire, you know, the the round of the legislative battle that we've kind of ended with this week, or at least seems to be dormant as of this week, has been if we assume that everybody is okay with some kind of legal status for, you know, Somewhere between 700,000 immigrants, i.e. the ones who are currently protected under DACA or who, who have lost their protections over the last few months, um, or, you know, the kind of two million plus people who who could would be considered like if we if we know that the ask for legalization is somewhere between those two, what is the proportional thing on enforcement? The way that the White House puts it is that they never really wanted legalization, that, mm -hmm. that, that legalization or particularly citizen, allowing people to get citizenship is itself a concession for them. Um, 
And that just makes negotiation very difficult, right? Because when they're saying that this thing that the president is saying he wants something to to protect DACA recipients and they are saying, well, when he says something, he actually means this very particular thing. And we're already giving you everything you want by doing this other thing. Right. It's just it's been kind of a mess. And so, you know, I think the real value of this week, even though everything got shot down, was that. We actually got a sense of what Republicans who aren't the White House actually do want. And we also got a sense of what the White House is and isn't willing to do. It looked in September like Donald Trump would have enthusiastically signed something like the, you know, the Collins proposal or even the McCain-Coons proposal. And instead we were getting veto threats. Right. Well, it's interesting you bring up how hard it is to make negotiations with Trump when he is saying something. (laughs) But it's sort of this ambiguous, nebulous thing, because I'm curious to get your thoughts on this from Jeff Flake, who obviously is an Arizona Republican, who gave one reason he thinks negotiations aren't happening still. I think we have that clip. We couldn't touch it this time in the bipartisan proposal because of the president's comments on African countries. That just, uh, that kind of rhetoric, words matter, and that made it impossible to address one of the pillars, and that made it more difficult to get more Republicans on board. And, and yet, by the way, Mitch McConnell came out and blamed Democrats for this failing yesterday, right? So yeah. Trump into DACA. Yes. Trump backed out of a DACA deal. Uh, Trump's bill was the least popular. McConnell ended debate on Thursday for whatever reason. Uh, Democrats applied 47 of the 54 votes on the bipartisan bill. And yet Mitch McConnell somehow came out and said, this is Democrats' fault. Right. Well, this is the the logic of by giving you any form of legalization, we're conceding to you, right? Yeah. The, mm-hmm. You know, McConnell's logic is it's class, classic hostage logic, right? If you really wanted to protect, if you really wanted me not to shoot this hostage, you would have given me the billion dollar ransom that I asked for. Uh. Um, but, you know, it's it makes a little bit more sense from McConnell's standpoint and from the standpoint of of Republicans in Congress who have never been particularly, you know, nobody in Congress has said we need to legalize. Well, no, most mainstream Republicans, instead of saying we need to legalize dreamers or we need to provide citizenship for dreamers, have said we need to do something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, you know, I do think that there was a little bit of feeling of concession among Republicans who voted for the Trump plan, which would have allowed, they think, uh, up to 1.8 million people to get citizenship. Uh, They're it is not clear how they got that that number. Their familiarity with policy is not always intimate. Um, but, you know, that it makes some sense for Republicans to say, look, we gave up something on voting for this bill that, you know, in theory, we can now get hit in primaries saying we voted for an amnesty bill. Right. We don't want that. Right. Um, so I don't it's from Mitch McConnell's standpoint. I mean, although, of course, it's. The, the numbers are not exactly in his favor. I do kind of understand McConnell saying that. It's it's the White House saying, look, we're giving you what mm-hmm. everything you asked for by putting up a proposal that comports with what the president says he wants. <laughs> that is just kind of chin scratching. And I think right. I think Flake's, you know, Flake's comments aren't wrong. I don't think yeah. that they're right in the way that Flake intends them. The way I kind of saw the immediate upshot of the comments that Trump made last month Mm -hmm. is that 
Democrats, you know, and the, there had been a couple of go rounds of government, you know, kick the can down the road funding bills in December. Right. And Democrats were really ambivalent over shutting down the government over immigration. And the minute that those comments dropped, it became clear that Democrats had found an excuse mm -hmm. to vote against a continued government funding bill because no one was going to co contradict them if they said the president is racist. We can't support a racist president's policies. Right. Like, but does so that I, still hold? That was last month. Right. Like, I think so. I, I don't I'm not sure. I, th I think what Flake is saying there is that Graham Durbin was a proposal that was kind of working backwards from these are the four things that the president says he wants. Here is the least disruptive way we can give him those four things. And, you know, it the four things that Trump said he wanted kind of weren't it was very opportunistic. It was kind of the way that Trump responds to things. Right. There were right. a couple of failed terrorist attacks and fall and he decided that the way those people had come to the country needed to be shut down but you know the Graham Durbin bill was like very much the okay we are giving you what you say you want nominally and just trying to not make it a huge policy deal and so I do think that in theory if Trump had been you know a little more responsive to that deal it would have been a lot harder for you know it would have been there, there would have been a debate over that, and it would have been a lot harder for the White House to say this is totally non-responsive. But my understanding right. is that the bills that actually came to the, you know, the the Democratic-sponsored amendments, the bipartisan bills that came to the floor yesterday, that didn't address the diversity visa, it was kind of understood among everyone in the room that they didn't really want to touch not only the diversity visa but like legal immigration generally. That was just a very touchy subject because of what the president said, and right. that made it impossible to come up with a bill that even looked like an attempt to address what the White House was saying were its deal breakers. Right. And then you have the separate issue of like certain Republicans, and I'm curious to get your thoughts, but certain Republicans who are in the president's ear and have been throughout immigration, whether they're like just working in the administration with him, like Stephen Miller and John Kelly, or they're Republican lawmakers like Tom Cotton, a source close to Trump told Axios that Trump basically is not going to sign off on anything that Tom Cotton isn't signing off on himself. So I'm curious to get your thoughts on that and like who are the key Republican players in this that like actually have leverage or actually have influence over Trump? Uh, so before I actually talk about the Republicans who do have leverage, I want to pour one out for Lindsey Graham, who like <laughs> spent a year Body. sucking up to Trump so badly. Body. And now, like, not only is it clear that he does not have sufficient pull with Trump to actually get this thing done, but Senior administration officials, mm -hmm. quote unquote, on a call yesterday were explicitly calling Lindsey Graham out as part of the problem. Right. Um, and of course, not putting their names behind this. So, uh, right. you know, you can you can leave it to yourself to figure out who they are. But, uh, <laughs> you know, unrelatedly, Stephen Miller um, happens to I, I think, you know, in, in my in my view, this is kind of the week that we saw if. If there's going to be a President Miller narrative in the way that there was a President Bannon narrative mm -hmm. uh, a year ago, it's going to be the, because of this week. Because mm -hmm. what we saw is that Donald Trump, who has actually, you know, in September, Trump was not only trying to distance himself from ending DACA. Like, he had Jeff Sessions give the actual speech. Right. He was tweeting these super reassuring things that yes. were totally Dictated wrong by on Nancy the policy. Pelosi. Right, right. <laughs> um, you know, and... Bet with that, with the Chuck and Nancy meeting in September, where it looked like he was just going to sign off on a dreamer deal with no concessions. What a day. Um, even in the weird televised <laughs> meeting in January after the t cameras turned off, 
we have reports that the Department of Homeland Security like handed out this packet of their demands and Trump mm-hmm. looked at it and said, this isn't what I want, you know, and, and like ordered them to discard it and then was negotiating on a much narrower set of things. So it Trump has actually ha- allowed his dealmaker instincts to like cut against the right, you know, the kind of right wing of his administration in some mm-hmm. respects. And that wasn't there this week. You know, Trump has been kind of underengaged on this. It's the, it's not like the Trump administration is very has a very tight relationship with like whipping the hill generally, but they certainly weren't doing much of that kind of, you know, flesh pressing this week. Right. They were just kind of lobbying the bombs from above at the proposals they didn't like. Um, but Trump himself, like he tweeted a couple of vague things about merit based immigration. That's it. You know, he he definitely didn't you know, he wasn't indicating anything that he would sign any of the bipartisan bills. That was, I think, the problem. Mm -hmm. Um, But the real kind of artillery against those proposals was coming from statements from the White House, including, you know, the the veto threat, which was a standard form of veto threat, you know, not like the strongest form, but his advisors would recommend that he veto, which is something other presidents have used. But in the case of this president, like, it did sound a little bit weird. It's not that, you know, it's not that Trump wouldn't have been consulted on that, but it still kind of did drive home that the strongest words on this have come from the White House itself rather than from Trump. But Trump isn't getting out there saying we really want a, a DACA deal. He's right. he's decided, and it, this kind of became clear on his Twitter about three weeks ago, he's decided that he really wants to get to March 5th and start blaming Democrats, yeah. um, which yeah. is, you know, the the kind of significance of March 5th is is a whole other thing, but... And that's just around the been, corner. Well, so here's here's the thing about March 5th. As yeah, policy, March 5th is only like three years away, is what it feels like. <laughs> as policy, March 5th was never a big as big a deal as it was politically, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. the real significance of March 5th was that Donald Trump set a timer on Congress, and Congress doesn't right. tend to act unless there's a deadline. The problem is that the way they actually set up the wind-down of the DACA program, like... I think that the, the putting the timer on Congress has given everyone this sense that like 690,000 people will lose work permits on one day. That's not how it works. Mm-hmm. It's been like there's been this trickle already of people losing their work permits under DACA. Um, it's about 122 a day now. Estimates are somewhere on the order of like a thousand a day after March 5th because people didn't mm-hmm. have people whose work permits expired after March 5th didn't have a chance to renew right. um, in fall. But like it's it's still going to be this kind of gradual stream. You're not going to hit people who it, I, I ran the numbers on this yesterday and you're not going to hit more than half of people who had DACA as of September 2017 losing it until like the end of this year or later. Mm. So it's not or actually like probably close to the beginning, uh, like the first quarter of 2019. So, so given it's that, not, do you expect there will be a lot of pressure? This, on? Is, this is the thing is like it putting this I don't I don't know that Donald Trump was thinking about this. I don't know that Donald Trump understands how DACA works. I but putting that kind of pressure on Congress created an urgency that the policy probably wouldn't have. Mm-hmm. And like it also is the case that it's currently under a court order. The Department of Homeland Security is accepting renewals. So 
They haven't really started issuing those yet because that court order just happened a month ago and it tends to take them a few months. But like right now, there's a decent chance that some of the people whose work permits were going to expire or have expired are going to end up getting another two year renewal. So that's going to kind of cushion that blow a lot more. So I'm not really sure that there's going to be a point at which Congress feels kind of the grassroots urgency of people are losing their work permits, much less hmm. people are getting deported, which is like a whole, se- you know, it, yeah. it, not necessarily the case even after they lose work permits and depends entirely on whether ICE agents make it, you know, it. I there are like lots of complications about who has access to what information, but the vibe that we're getting from ICE is that they are not going to make an effort to like print out a list of DACA recipients. Mm-hmm. They're just going to apprehend anybody they find, which is a great way to increase the vulnerability that immigrants themselves feel, right. but doesn't mean there's probably going to be a lot of terrible headlines anytime soon. Right. Well, we have just a couple of minutes left, but I'd love to know what you're looking for next. Now that everything has basically failed this week, debates can barely get off the ground. What are you watching? Uh, so... This morning, actually, in a closed door session, the Supreme Court is coming back and is taking Mm. up one of the orders that they're looking at is the the Trump administration wants to go straight to the Supreme Court with the order that required them to reopen DACA. So we're not going to find out whether the Supreme Court is granting that today. We'll probably find out, you know, one of the next times that they just kind of give their list of grants. Mm -hmm. But they're in a really tough position right now because If the Senate had done something, it would be very easy for them to say, we're not going to allow you to skip the circuit courts. (laughs) Like, that's super unusual. We don't think you deserve it. This is getting worked out legislatively. Right now, it's not at all clear that it's going to get worked out legislatively. And so they have to kind of decide, do they want to punt on something that could end up with like these very liberal circuit courts preventing the Trump administration from putting a policy that it wanted to put in place, uh, which is not something that, you know, this court has been pretty deferential to the Trump administration on like the travel bans, for example. Personally, I think that the case on DACA is a little bit, it's easier to defer to the executive branch on that even. So they have to choose between do we want to allow these very liberal, possibly overturnable orders to stay, or do we want to screw with precedent in, in potentially a really bad way? So it's going to be very interesting to see what decision they make on that. It probably won't be a decision that gets based made based on immigration, but it's going to have a huge impact on where we go for the next five months. Right. Gosh, well, a lot to look forward to. Thank you so much, Darylind, for joining us. Um, you can follow her work on Vox.com, V-O-X.com. Thank you. Thank you. Lots to talk about next time, I'm sure. But nice meeting you. Happy weekend, We'll be everyone. right back with Addie Blair from Think Progress, and we're going to talk more about the Florida shooting and uh, a lot of other things going on. This is The Bill Press Show. Hey, everybody. This is Bill Press. Thanks for listening to the Bill Press and Friends podcast. And now do yourself a favor. If you haven't already done so, subscribe to the show on iTunes. Here's what you do. Just search for The Bill Press Show. Then you can take us with you and listen in anywhere you go. And you'll get new shows from us as soon as they're posted. And one more thing. If you really enjoy Bill Press and Friends, please help us grow by telling a friend, writing a review, and giving us a rating on iTunes. It's so great to have you on board. Many thanks.
you everything you need to fight the Trump administration. This is The Bill Press Show, live at youtube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Alexi McCammond, reporter and editor with Axios, obviously filling in for Bill Press. I am now joined by the wonderful Addie Baird, who is a news and politics reporter at Think Progress. Hello, how are you? I'm good. Good morning. Good morning. Thank you for coming in. Absolutely. Um, especially so early. There's a lot to talk about. We were talking about the Florida shooting earlier, so maybe we'll give that um, a little bit of a break. I know you mentioned that you've been covering midterms. I have, yeah. We are 263 days away. Well, okay. You also, ha- I who's counting? Not yeah. me. Well, um, thank you, Google. You can Google how yeah, many yeah. days, and it'll just tell you. Yeah, no, that sounds right. We're like 200-ish days away. That sounds plus. right. That sounds uh, right. We'll go with that. We'll, we'll go, go with that. that. Yeah. November is, is November. <laughs> That's where, like the easier And it is February. Yeah, right. Why are we complicating this so much? <laughs> right. You know, it's early. I just want to make sure people are listening. Do yeah. math. Are you awake? Yeah. Are you thinking? <laughs> how many days? <laughs> Um, okay, so before we talk about midterms, we're going to do the full court press. Let's do it. This is the full court press. Just a couple of other stories making news here. Okay, so I did a story a couple of weeks ago. There was a woman who won the Powerball jackpot. She won $559.7 million. This, is when, this was in New Hampshire. And there is a law in New Hampshire that if you win the Powerball, if you win a lottery, you have to put your name out there. Because they want to use it for advertising purposes Good. and say, like, this person I won this privacy. Program. Right. Well, here's the thing. This woman won. She signed her name on the ticket, and then she said, on the winning lottery ticket, and then she says, oh, wait a minute. Actually, I'd like to be anonymous. And the New Hampshire Lottery Commission said, actually, no, you can't huh? remain anonymous. So she is taking them to court. New Hampshire. Yeah, what right? What are you doing? Well, they want, again, I mean, I'm not trying to defend them, but their argument is... We need to be able to say that this is a real person who won this money. We right. use her in our advertisements and blah, 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 blah. I mean, it's, it's half a billion dollars we're talking about. Yeah. So here's the thing. They have now, because I, I mentioned that she had taken them to court to stay anonymous. Mm-hmm. So yesterday, the court filing approved a payment to the woman, but the court case is still going to go on. So she now has $559.7 million, and it's hers. But... It's all sort of depending on what happens with this uh, with this case. So if it turns out that they say, no, you have to come forward, she's either going to have to say, actually, I want to remain anonymous and I'm going to give this money back. Oh. Or oh my. what is the price of anonymity? Right? I the, love this, capitalism. Right. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> so what would you do if you have this money in your possession and they say you either have to give it back and remain anonymous Here's or the come thing. forward and keep Here's it. the thing. Go ahead. You know that game you play when you're like a kid where you're like, you know, how much would someone have to pay you to eat a slug? You oh, know? I still play that game. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. Okay, you know that game you play when you're like adults on a radio show? Yeah, 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 right? yeah, 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 yeah. Like, I think someone would have to pay me like $2,000 to eat a slug. Okay, that's not true. I'd probably do it for like 100 bucks. Um, <laughs> but you play that game and you put a number down. Yeah. The question is, how much money would you have to have for everyone in the state to know your name? Oh, yeah. Right. And so my answer is literally like 20 bucks. (laughs) Yeah. Come on. Also, like, as journalists, how much unwanted attention do we get all the time? Exactly. Exactly. Everything about you and put your foot over. I would keep the money for sure. It's a half a billion dollars. Just to be clear, (laughs) I'm keeping the money. And listen, I want to make it clear. 
No one should have to release their name if they don't want to release their name. Right. I agree. No one should I have to, but, but. Given the circumstances given that we the circumstances, are presented with. Everyone in New Hampshire can know my name for half a billion dollars. Yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> there have been some multiple stories, by the way, of, like, people who won and put, and like, their names get put out there. And then, like, everybody begins harassing them. Right. 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 So, and that's, it's also different, like you said, like, when you're a journalist, you're kind of used to yeah. your names out there. You're harassed people all are, the time. People are harassing you all the time. Yeah. Like, it's different if you're just, like, a mom in New Hampshire. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah, we will be back in just a few. On TV and online. This is the Bill Press Show. Welcome back to the Bill Press Show. I'm Alexa McCammond. We uh, told you just a few minutes ago, it is apparently 263 days until the midterms. (laughs) (laughs) I'm just going to, you know, keep, I don't do math much anymore. I'm a words person, obviously, so anytime I can say numbers in. I always say that if I could do math, I wouldn't have gone into journalism. (laughs) I used to be good at it, and then I gave up, and now it's like, it's like a foreign language. If you don't keep up with it, you lose it, now I'm like... I'm great at math. I don't know what y'all are talking about. (laughs) The best is when I'm with friends and they're like, I don't know how to calculate the tip. And I'm like, I got this. This is the one thing I know for sure I can still do as a words person. Here we go. Yeah. Um, But in any case, the midterms are coming up in November. 263 days. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You can also Google it and find out if I'm wrong. Um, I like to think that we have like scribbled out little days. Like like we're in prison. on the wall. Yeah. (laughs) Just like counting it down. Battling our cup on the cage that we're in and then like putting another line on the wall. It's an exciting time, you know, especially because it kind of pretty much overlaps with the 2020 cycle ramping up in like eight-ish, nine months. So, you know, again, a very slow news cycle for everyone. It's a really calm time. Yeah, there's nothing to focus on. Definitely. Um, But I think so. We can start with one kind of, I don't know how fun it is, but fun clip from Mitt Romney. Who hey, was I'm supposed so. to? Oh, Let's talk about amazing! It. Who was supposed to announce he was running yesterday? Yeah, Donald Trump is a phony, a fraud. His promises are as worthless as a degree from Trump University. Uh, not being shy at all, obviously, about how he feels about Trump is likely. Go, is he going to run? Do we know this for sure? Yeah, so he's definitely going to run. Um, he. He well. Let's also let's also back up. That's a that's a really different tune than he was singing in 2012. Um, which when, was which was in 2012. He, by all accounts, uh, including the accounts of Trump himself, which uh, you know this sounds so much like Trump. I don't, we we didn't think much of it in 2012 that that Trump was like he came and begged for my endorsement. Right. But uh, Romney Romney at the very least courted courted Trump for his endorsement. Uh, and Trump endorsed Romney's um, run in 2012. Um, really different tune four years later yes. um, at the University of Utah was where he gave that speech. Romney is is definitely running for Senate. He was supposed to announce yesterday. He's postponed it because of the shooting. Um, and by my understanding of what he is going to try to do is to thread this needle the way that, um, you know, when Al Franken ran, when Hillary Clinton ran for Senate in New York, um, 
of these are national figures who basically decide to run for Senate and and take this route of really focusing in on local issues and uh, sort of trying to stay out of the national spotlight. And, and that, by all accounts, is what Romney is going to try to do. I'm not convinced that's going to work for him, much like right. that didn't really work yeah. for Hillary Clinton or Al Franken. Right. Um, Calling Trump a fraud doesn't seem like staying out of the national spotlight. Exactly. Exactly. And, um, yeah, so he's he's definitely going to run. Do it's... you think that's successful? I feel like, so one thing I'm fascinated by, <laughs> and, like, I'm still relatively new to D.C., so every time I say this, I'm like, people are probably going to think I'm dumb, is this idea of, like, litmus tests. After Trump, I feel like there have been a lot for Democrats, but for Republicans, I feel like there's one, and it's are you for or against Trump. And I think being against him, like, I don't think you can't be. We see what's happening with Jeff Flake, but, like, will that be successful for Romney? Can he run as an anti-Trump Republican and be successful? Absolutely. Um, Utah is its own ecosystem in so many ways, and and the, the really only important thing is... For Mitt Romney, the litmus test are, is, are you Mitt Romney um, <laughs> in Utah? I had a win. That's good. When, a, when um, Hatch announced his retirement, um, there was, I felt like a lot of kind of misunderstandings from people um, about the way that Utah works. Utah is, um, Bannon, a Bannon-type candidate won't gain traction in Utah. People really like Mike Lee. He's, but he is not the Bannon wing of the party. He's mm-hmm. not a centrist by any means. Right. Um, but he's also not a Bannon-type extremist. He's so there's this there's this sense of, and and Mike is still sort of made his name and time in during the Trump era by kind of resisting Trump from the conservative flank. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is all to say, I had a friend say, and I thought it was perfect, um, Mitt Romney could run against God in Utah, and he would win with 55% of the vote. Um, Well, and when Orrin Hatch a year ago, about a year ago, was saying, like, I'm considering not seeking re-election, but I will only do that if Mitt Romney runs, right? Yeah. That he had his endorsement then. So it makes sense that he would Mitt Romney means a lot to the people of Utah. He Mm -hmm. really does in a way that, you know— There's certainly um, Democrats in Utah who don't like Mitt Romney, but even Democrats in in Utah, especially Mormon Democrats, have a soft spot for Mitt Romney. Um, He he really means a lot to people in Utah. And he people members of the Mormon church want very much to be seen as that there's a sense within Utah that the rest of the world thinks of people within the Mormon church as weird and extreme and insular and and uh and Mitt Romney meant a lot to them as a mm-hmm. national figure who was heavily involved in the Mormon church and uh that hasn't gone away they really love him he means a lot to them um and you know he's he's not running against God so he's gonna right. win I, the, 75% of the vote the other thing about you know a guy like Mitt Romney is he's not I mean obviously in the way that he carries himself is a lot different from Trump but like he's totally. not going to vote much different than Trump exactly right? mm. exactly I was talking to one of the um, one of the his name is Mitchell Weiss he's running for the the Democratic nomination he's sort of a Bernie Kratt type character mm-hmm. um, interesting guy I asked him 
I, he said to me, listen, if the people of Utah want a Mormon high priest who served his mission in France, they've got me. And, um, <laughs> and but, uh, we're looking for. Exactly. But, um, <laughs> but he, what he said was, listen, Romney sounds different than Trump. Mm-hmm. Romney gives a different speech than Trump. Yeah. Romney will, will say things that appeal to... Uh, centrists and and Democrats in Utah, you know, like mm-hmm. Hatch, he he will probably talk about medical marijuana. He will talk about protecting refugees and and you know voting. And he'll he'll support the Dream Act if in 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 some sort of iteration. But right. and he but what he said was he said, listen, the difference is, and I think he's absolutely right about this. Mitt Romney will go to D.C., which he will. Mitt Romney is going to be the next senator from Utah. Um, <laughs> And he will vote along the party lines. Yeah. He will vote with Trump, mm-hmm. uh, much like Flake, much like Corker, much like these these. Y- you can resistance cut off the talk. Republicans. Yeah, yeah. No, look, I this mean, is Romney's whole thing. Uh, yeah. uh, Democrats, we hear a lot on this show, and people talk about how great Jeff Flake is and how awesome it is that Bob Corker fired a couple of shots. Uh, uh, Conservatives now call him liberal. Yeah, no, I mean, like, yeah, and, and and liberals are just like, wow, thank God someone's going to, like, a Republican is going to yeah. stand up to Donald Trump, and it's like, they voted with him on everything. Right. And, right. like, the, the only difference between Jeff Flake, John McCain, uh, uh, Little Bob Corker, all these guys, the only difference between them and Trump is that Trump says the quiet part loud. Exactly. That's it. That's the exactly. only difference. I got accused of sniping in the New York Times because after Flake, uh... Like announced his retirement and gave this speech that was like, I hate the president. And everyone was like, he's a hero. I was yeah. like, what are you talking well, yeah, about? Right, right. He's rolling over and to like give Kelly Ward a seat. You yeah, know, right. it's it, he's not a hero. And then went and voted for the big uh, tax reform bill. Exactly. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No. And and listen, these, these, these aren't saviors for Democrats. right? They're, they're not saviors for Democrats. And to your point of the litmus test. That is, I think, in many ways, a litmus test in Utah is Mm. are you going to vote for Republican priorities? Mm -hmm. Are you going to vote for uh, are you going to vote for tax cuts? Are you going to vote for? um, And it's interesting because the church basically acts as a as a as a welfare system within Utah. So people in Utah talk like conservative people. they kind of have that compassionate conservative streak and and they want to support refugees and they mm-hmm. want people to have health care and they want people to have food assistance. But they're much more comfortable when it comes through the church and mm-hmm. not the government. And and so that really is an interesting litmus test, like you mentioned, that like Rom- if Romney speaks with compassion and votes with the party that that will make people very happy. Utah is such a unique place. I'm curious where else you think a Republican could run as an anti-Trump Republican and be successful. I don't know. Anywhere. It's hard because uh, I'm not from anywhere else, so I don't know <laughs> anywhere else nearly as well. But Utah is really, really unique. And, and more than Utah being unique, Mitt Romney is unique. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I genuinely think it would be different if this was a race between, say, like, two Republican state senators right. in Utah. Right. Um, right. Uh, obviously, it doesn't really work in Arizona. Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Obviously, it doesn't uh, quite work in Nevada. Mm-hmm. Um, you know. I think the larger thing we can point to is messaging, though, yes. right? So whether it is like being an anti-Trump Republican or blaming Democrats, which is what we saw Mitch McConnell do 
uh, with immigration. And right. we see them continuing as a party to blame Democrats, to blame Nancy Pelosi, yep. continue to attack her. Do you think that is a successful strategy for Republicans running in the midterms to just be anti-Democrat? No. The other thing that people in Utah love is being positive. <laughs> um for real though, and and, yeah. and I mean this is this is true in a lot of places, but negative campaigning uh, doesn't quite work. Mm-hmm. People want a, and this I mean this is true about uh, this is true about politics in general. People want a message. People want a uh, people want a something to look for and hope for, and and um, not just someone to blame. Right. Um, and you know it does. It does. Wow, I feel like I'm reliving the 2016 election all over again. We're going to live it forever. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're, it's, we're it never loop. ended. Yeah. I mean, yeah, sorry. Let's not do that right now. But, <laughs> but yeah, it's never going to end. So, right. yeah, I, I think that Romney will take the route of, here's what I can give Utah. I right. know he will. I know he right. will take the route of, here's what I can give Utah. Right. So I'd love to tee up another Republican who uh, sir, is from Wisconsin, who made a comment earlier uh, this week about coming together after the Florida shooting. I think we have the clip of that, if we could just play his words. It's one of those moments where we just need to step back and count our blessings. We need to think less about taking sides and fighting each other politically and just pulling together. So that was obviously after the Parkland shooting, and that was obviously Paul Ryan, the House Speaker, who's from Wisconsin, has a uh, what Democrats consider a pretty formidable challenger in Randy Bryce, yeah. who has been raising iron a stash. ton of money, iron stash. Um, obviously, he, he conducts himself in that moment, that clip we just played, as like a measured lawmaker who is calling for, presumably, bipartisan support. I'm curious to get your thoughts on... Paul Ryan and how he's going to position himself in the midterms, um, especially considering there's been speculation that he won't even run or that he doesn't want to. Yeah, I don't know. So listen, here's what we do know is that being the Speaker of the House sucks. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, especially right now. I'm especially sure he's not right now, and especially with the Republican Party in its current form, like. Yeah. Like there, there's, there's no doubt in my mind that Paul Ryan is facing many of the same challenges that drove John Boehner mm-hmm. out of, out of the, out of the speakership. Um, he does certainly and have. Paul a, Ryan doesn't drink as much as John Boehner, so this is even tougher. I know he doesn't have two packs a day to rely yeah, on. That sucks. It's really hard for him. Um, yeah, no, he has a formidable challenger in in the Iron Stash. He's a really interesting <laughs> dude, and his campaign right. is really interesting. And. Um, his there there are a, a really interesting kind of story that trickled out about their campaign earlier this week or last week. My sense of time is extremely skewed. <laughs> it's just a social construct. Um, it was time is three days ago. Time yes. doesn't exist. <laughs> Basically, they're a very pro union, pro worker campaign, right. and their campaign unionized, and um, they're just a fascinating campaign. And they end up getting these kind of really interesting national stories because. Uh, you know, Paul Ryan tweeted this thing about this school secretary who got an extra one fifty in her paycheck and right. just one fifty well, uh, one dollar uh, fifty cents. An extra fifty dollars in her paycheck. That's uh, great. Yes, a an extra one dollar and fifty cents <laughs> yeah. in her paycheck, yeah. and um, the Bryce campaign ended up raising like tens of thousands of dollars and and 
like half of it was a was dollar fifty donations. Right. Um, so they're a really interesting campaign. Um, and you know, someone from the D trip said to me the other day, it's a blessing and a curse to run against Paul Ryan. Mm. Um, you know, Randy Bryce is a formidable challenger, interesting campaign. Like we were saying, he's got a, a strong message, um, but it is a curse to have to run against the Speaker of the House in a lot of ways. Um, and, Especially and in Paul Wisconsin. Ryan in particular. Yeah, right, right. Which, and, like, they've set up this, like, Republican stronghold exactly. with Scott Walker as governor, Paul Ryan. You and, know, right, there is, I mean, they produced Ryan's Priebus. Right, they, right. The, the Republican Party in Wisconsin is just a juggernaut. Um, they're like the grassroots activist force in Wisconsin, exactly. which I think people forget. Uh, someone from Wisconsin was saying to me the other day, the uh, it, it was someone from the, I don't remember exactly who said this, but they were basically saying the, the grassroots in Wisconsin is the establishment. Yes. Mm. Yes. So, you know, it, it's sort of like you get Paul Ryan, you get Scott right. Walker, you get Ryan's Priebus, you get these and and then the Cook brothers are just pouring money into yes. Wisconsin. So you yes. know, there it's just a really interesting state to watch. And right, and that also goes into voter turnout, which like across totally. the country, I think that we've seen uh, last year, especially Democratic voter turnout, just in record numbers, especially yep. in an off year. And midterm election voter turnout is usually low, definitely compared to presidential yep. elections. But we've seen this trend with Democrats turning out. But I think in Wisconsin, it might have the opposite effect because totally. of everything we're talking about. Totally. There are, I think you're totally right on that front. There are a lot of signs that the midterm elections are going to be good for Democrats or could be good for Democrats. It is 263 days away, so it's a long time. <laughs> we've got a lot of time for things to change. But as of right now, things do look good for Democrats. It is super interesting to look at states like Utah and Wisconsin where that doesn't quite seem to make sense on the ground. Right. Right. And you mentioned Utah, a Bannon-backed candidate wouldn't really do well. Yeah. And in Wisconsin with Tammy Baldwin for the Senate race, obviously she's a Democratic senator. She's the incumbent. But it's a state that went to Trump. She's now facing two Republican challengers that are so fascinating to me. They're so fascinating. Like, I'm, I am it's, very um, much a nerd, but this is like Vukman wild. and Nicholson, yes, right? Yes. Okay. So Kevin Nicholson is like the Bannon-backed candidate. But who is McConnell just like also Jane. likes him, right? Right. Right. <laughs> so like that's weird. But then Leah Vukmir is the like grassroots establishment, Scott yeah. Walker friend and endorsed candidate. So it's like this weird moment playing out and we see like you said the Koch brothers pouring money into yeah. the race with Paul Ryan we see these outside conservative groups who have spent a record number millions already millions. against Tammy Baldwin yeah by this is this is what the Baldwin campaign told me so take that with that in mind right. but they say that there is more outside spending against Tammy Baldwin than all other vulnerable Democrats yes. combined yes exactly and but the numbers show that so it's not just the Baldwin campaign being partisan, which, like, obviously totally. when they talk about, they, like, not being right. worried, that's them being like, well, everything's going to be fine when it might not be. They should be worried. But that <laughs> that amount of millions against her in ways that we haven't seen from any of the red state Democratic right. senators. Right, Which I, is, like, another thing that is probably worrying Democrats in addition to their likely being high Republican voter turnout. These outside groups, whether it's the Kochs or other conservative groups, are happy and willing and will spend money in record amounts against these Democrats. Yeah, and and listen, Democrats also 
I think it's smart framing. The way that a lot of these campaigns, um, you know, basically Democrats in states that went for Trump, especially states that Mm -hmm. went for Trump, you know, in double digits, uh, like Missouri. Mm -hmm. um, But they they really like to paint this race as uh, not Claire McCaskill versus Josh Hawley, but Claire McCaskill versus special interests and big outside spending. Mm -hmm. Um, And I do know that that is that is a they they've they've chosen to push that message and that framing of this race. It's also kind of the truest framing of this race of of these races with, you know, like Baldwin's race in Wisconsin um, and and these other kind of vulnerable Democrats is is this big outside spending. Right. And you mentioned states that went for Trump by double digits. Another one is North Dakota. Yep. Kevin Kramer is supposed to announce yeah. today. Oh, actually, I've changed my mind from a month ago in which I said I'm not running for Senate against yeah. Nor- uh, North Dakota Senator Heidi Heitkamp, who's a Democrat. He's going to announce that he's actually running. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. These races are still shaping up in really interesting ways. Mm-hmm. And a lot of these primaries are really interesting. I'm really interested in the Wisconsin primary, actually, because uh, Vic Marin Nicholson signed a... Um, a, I don't remember exactly what they called it. A loyalty it like pr- like a, a unity a, a, pledge. A unity pledge. Yes. That's what it was. Yes. And five hours later, <laughs> they it was literally five hours because it was the day that the yes. Michael Wolf stuff just like tore Bannon and Trump yes. apart. Yeah. And they just immediately were at each other's throats. Um, the primary in Indiana is also just nasty. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's really like. There are there are all of these interesting races. There are a lot of Democrats who are kind of like sitting on their haunches right now, um, mm-hmm. waiting to see how these things, sh- these these primaries shape up. But they're they're they are moving and they're nasty and they're they're fascinating to watch because right. there there are there are there's this rift between Trump establishment candidates right. and Bannon candidates and McConnell candidates right. and then Mitt Romney's there and like <laughs> the whole crew. Yeah, it's I mean it's a fascinating right kind of bubbling story. Right. In the last few minutes I'd love to get your thoughts on what you think as you're following the midterms, what you think Republicans thus far are doing really well and Democrats are doing really well either on the candidate <laughs> level or as parties. So what Republicans are doing really well is that they passed tax reform. Um, mm-hmm. There, the Democratic, um, well, so the generic ballot has still has Democrats up, right? Only um, by what four points? Yes, Plus and four. and they were up by seven, eight points before this tax reform bill. So, what that tells us is that it's always better to do something than not do mm-hmm. that thing. Um, tax reform was unpopular. This bill was not um, was not a was not a popular bill. Among, I mean, it, it was tracking at like depending on the way that it was polled, like thirty percent of people right. really supported this bill. Um, but it doesn't matter. They they passed it. It was signed into law. Uh, they've touted it on mm-hmm. uh, you know every network that you can imagine. And people are now seeing benefits on their paychecks. People are from now it, seeing so benefits be on their paychecks, and and that is very good for them. Mm-hmm. Additionally, the economy is strong. That's always great um, in an election year for the party in power. Right. Um, what Democrats are doing well uh, is a harder question to answer um, because a lot of them aren't doing 
a ton yet. Um, yeah. Uh, they There are some really interesting house races. And obviously house races are, um, you know, more localized. We don't talk about them nearly as much as we talk about, you know, these interesting hard-fought Senate races. But there are a lot of Democrats um, that are running in places that could definitely flip. There are mm-hmm. a lot of Republicans who have retired. There are so it, it's almost it's hard to say this early for me what exactly Democrats are doing right. But the race, especially in the House, is shaping up in their favor. And if they play their cards right, which I think that they could, you know, I think they could falter in in some of these California races if they these jungle primaries could mm-hmm. if, if there's too yes. many Democrats in the race could put two Republicans on the ticket in right in, in like basically Democratic yeah. places that Democrats could and should hold right but uh if they play their cards right things could go very well for them as far as you know taking back um, Republican held seats that have been vacated by retirements. Right. I, I, I hate to hijack the show, but I just have to make a quick announcement Please. because uh, we have a tweet this oh. morning. Oh, oh god! From Mitt Romney. It's not. A, it's not a Donald Trump tweet. Oh, I was going to say. Not a Donald Trump I get, tweet. Do you want to know something crazy? I get his tweets sent to my phone and no, notifications. No, no, no. I had to, I I had to turn that yeah. off. I can't do that anymore. I used. I don't to, get any Twitter notifications to my phone. Yeah. For it's the only health. ones I get. Mitt Romney tweeting uh, just moments ago. I'm going to shock you all. Quote, I am running for United States no Senate. No yeah. Who could have seen this coming? What? I am running for United States Senate to serve the people of Utah and bring Utah's values to Washington. There is a long video of his announcement. All and- right. I'll hey. watch it in a minute. I will flag this one thing. <laughs> the um, our party chairman uh, came out and was like, I have two questions for Mitt Romney. First one is why. Second one is, how do you plan to represent the people of Utah? You're not from Utah. Uh Yes. So, yes, and speaking of Twitter, he changed his location yeah. to Holiday, Utah. To Utah. <laughs> Holiday. He's doing it right. He knows the power of Twitter as well. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's that's how I, too, run for Senate is I change my Just location. change your location. <laughs> and it's and that's how you know. That's what you do. Yeah. No that's one can tell you differently. Right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Addy, thank you so much. Thank 263 you. days of fun things to Let's watch. Let's go. We'll keep counting it down every day. All uh, right. Thank you Thanks. so much. We'll be right back talking with Joe Perticone from Business Insider. Live video, Bill's commentary, the best clips from the show, all in one place. YouTube.com slash The Bill Press Show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to The Bill Press Show. I'm Alexi McCammon from Axios, obviously filling in for Bill Press. We are here with Joe Perticone, political reporter for Business Insider. Hello, Joe. How are you? I'm doing well. How are happy you doing? Friday. I'm good. I'm good. I'm happy to have you here. We've been talking about a lot, uh, everything from the shooting to immigration to a little bit about what's going on in the White House and midterms. Um, we were just talking about midterms with Addy from Think Progress. So I'd love to talk to you a little bit about Democrats. Obviously, you can talk to any number of people from the Democratic Party and the Republican Party and everything in between, and they will say Democrats' biggest problem is their lack of unified messaging. So you have a piece on them sort of struggling to find a cohesive message. Talk to me a little bit about what they are trying to do. Well, they definitely have like the enthusiasm advantage that Republicans have had in the past few years. Um, but, you know, they were talking about um, you know, the whole crumbs comment, uh, Nancy Pelosi mm-hmm. said she's going to keep doing it. And it shows that people don't like that because, you know, 
people like bonuses or they like, you know, a small increase in their paycheck. And, right. you know, I talked to John Delaney and uh, who's a presidential candidate and um, Keith Ellison, who's deputy chair of the DNC. And they said they don't like that. They don't like it when people say that. And Pelosi doubled down and said, I'm going to keep calling it crumbs. Um, and Keith Ellison and uh, Delaney both were saying that they'd they should highlight, you know, the long-term effects of the tax bill and how they think that's where the selling point is, that there are a lot of negative long-term effects. Right. Whereas the short-term, obviously, it's going to be popular. People like more money at the end of the day, and, you know, belittling that creates a, you know, a, an atmosphere of them being out of touch. And right. both Linda Sanchez and uh, Nancy Pelosi and Linda Sanchez's vice chair of the House Democratic Caucus you know, and she has called for Nancy Pelosi to step down many times. Yeah, and but they were both in agreement that it was, you know, crumbs or nickels and dimes is what uh, Sanchez used, you know, and that, I don't know, like there's a real split on what to call it or what to go right. after. And right. it seems to be that they should highlight the inequalities of the tax bill more right. than they could, you know, belittling, you know, what people are getting. That was right. what I was getting from a lot of the other Democrats. Well, and um, some months ago, this plan for messaging for Democrats came out, the a better deal plan, which is all about the economy, right? Like, how does that, how do they reconcile having that, like trying to shift to talking about the economy and then having someone like Pelosi and Linda Sanchez, who is like belittling these economic benefits that people are seeing? Well, they, they have their big slogan now that's like better deal, better wages. Better jobs. Better pizza. <laughs> <laughs> and then, but they they haven't rolled out like a platform, and maybe they might um, mm-hmm. the way Republicans did. If you remember, it was like I want to say end of twenty fifteen, maybe or it was early twenty sixteen. It's all a blur now. But <laughs> the Republicans rolled out in Congress their better way plan, where they mm-hmm. you know said this is what we're going to do on taxes, and obviously the ultimate result of the tax bill you know had was was strikingly different, except from some of the rate structure Mm -hmm. but and then they did each topic they did defense they did repealing obamacare but like they're not obviously doing a lot of those things but now that they're in power but they rolled out these clear things of what they're going to do that was specifically tied to their slogan and you haven't seen that yet from democrats um they're kind of all over the place you know you have a bunch of democrats backing medicare for all but you don't have anyone in the leadership you know pushing that in any you know concrete matter. Right. So given um, the polling that shows that people are unhappy with Pelosi's crumbs comment, do you think that that problem still holds after Paul Ryan tweeted about that $1.50 thing and now Democrats have that to use against them? Like, do you think it's a wash or do you think it's still going to hurt them? I, I think that, you know, that was probably like not a good idea by Ryan. <laughs> um, you know, he didn't you just said, wow, $1.50 every week. Like, no one's going to be like, great. Um, But, you know, practically applied, that's just a small piece of the benefits of the tax bill. That's another, what, $80 a year for her? Like she said in the article, the woman from Pennsylvania covers the cost of a Costco membership. That's a big deal for a family where they can buy in bulk. Right. Um, And that's just a small piece of it. That's just your immediate increase in take-home because of the new IRS withholding tables. But the average family saves about 900 a year. Mm -hmm. So, But they're not going to see that um, until next tax filing, not this year's. But 
if the Republicans get better and it shows that they are in terms of polling that they're better at selling this plan than the Democrats, that's bad news. Um, every right. Republican I've talked to, they think that the tax bill, while it's their only signature achievement so far, they think it's enough because it's always, you know, it's the economy, stupid. That's like <laughs> right. what it always right. is. So they think that they, if there's a booming economy and the economy is doing well and wage growth is increasing like it has at a faster rate since 2009, if Republicans can say, look, the Trump economy works, you know, that will probably help them a lot more than Democrats saying, you know, you know, going after wedge issues like, uh, you know, immigration and mm-hmm. you name it. Right. Well, what about Democrats who have voted against the tax plan? Are they screwed in the midterms? No, not necessarily. Uh, it depends on probably where they're from. Um, right. In 2016, there were 23 districts where Republicans won and Clinton won districts. Mm-hmm. Uh, half of that, there were 12 Democrats who won in Trump districts. Uh, that could be a little hard for them. Um, in the more purple districts, that'll be a factor, I think. But, you know, it will play really well if you oppose Republicans and Trump specifically on a lot of things in more blue areas. Right. And so as Democrats are struggling and trying to figure out a cohesive message, what are some trends that you've seen in their messaging? Like, I personally have noticed um, Democratic candidates running for the House putting health care, like going all in on health care in their digital ads and TV ads. What are some trends that you've noticed that you think are working well for them or that you think we should look out for? Um, always economy and healthcare, And I know that the leadership structure of the DCCC and um, the Senate campaigns is they want it to be economics and healthcare focused because that's what affects everybody. Mm-hmm. Not everybody deals with immigration uh, everywhere in the country. Not everybody right. deals with, you know, NFL protests or you name right. it. Like, Wedge issues don't really matter as much. Uh, they want to run on the economy. So I think, obviously, healthcare, especially because the repeal of the individual mandate um, that was part of the tax bill that affects uh, the healthcare system, that could increase premiums. That's something that Democrats could run on. Um, and again, like an economic or healthcare factor. Right. Um, and one thing you think they shouldn't talk about at all? <sighs> um, depending, obviously, on the area. Um, but immigration uh they that's you know people like to say that you know the a lot of you know more leniency towards immigrants is popular but it it really hasn't been shown to be like that in the past mm-hmm. several elections i trump won on a very hard line immigration platform right um so did a lot of republicans um and you know you're watching now in texas ted cruz is not budging at all. He is like the one person in the Senate that is not okay with a pathway to citizenship because it probably might work for him because, you know, there there is a real difference, I think, between especially those who come out to vote and um, those who either stay at home or for, what, for whatever reason. And I think that immigration is probably something. And I know a lot of Democrats kind of want to shy away from the issue. Right. But there's talk that, you know, Republicans like to say this, that Democrats just want to run on DACA. Um, I don't know a single Democrat who wants to, you know, have immigration as the central platform of their campaign because they know that's not a good idea. And what's the Trump factor in all this? How much do you anticipate they will be explicitly platforming on like anti-Trump messages or bringing up Russia? Or do you think they recognize, as I would assume, that it's foolish to do that? Um. I think some of the smarter candidates, you know, try to avoid 
discussing, you know, Russia stuff, especially in terms of campaigns, because there's not a lot of meat there. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, they just know that, you know, a lot, like most of the public, that's the last thing they're thinking about. It's right. like, it's always economic factors are the, you know, driving force. People care about their paycheck more than they care about, you know, this the, nebulous the, Russia the steel thing. dossier. Right, right. Which like most people probably couldn't even yeah. explain. Like I feel confused by yeah, it. it like, and, and, you know, people like Steve Bannon is like a, a factor. His name recognition's increased a lot, but like, mm -hmm. He was still relatively unknown, like even after Trump was elected, right? By the general public, right? So, in the same way that we've seen Republicans running or attacking Nancy Pelosi, do you anticipate to see Democrats attacking Paul Ryan, making him the foil instead of Trump? I I don't I don't think so. I think yeah. that Trump is just bigger now and an easier target, and there's so much more material there, yeah, um, for them. Um, and he's a very polarizing figure. <clears throat> you know, Republicans always made it about Obama, mm -hmm. um, and he kind of serves as the same thing. You mm -hmm. know, he's very polarizing to, you know, hardliners on both sides. Right. So after you've had all these conversations with folks on both sides of the aisle, you're seeing the different messages that are popping up and working and not working well for Democrats. Do you think that they will get it together and have a cohesive, unified message? I I you know I don't know I think yeah. that they they're I think it's they're less divided than Republicans because Republicans there are several factions you have these you know pro business moderates you mm -hmm. have these old Tea Party Freedom Caucus types and then you have these new populist Trump nationalist type folks and then so there's so many different competing factions whereas Democrats it's just kind of like two factions of people there's like the old guard and then you know. The, the new kids on the block and they right. if they can get together and try and figure out what they you know what works for each person in each district then they could probably have a lot of success but if they try to do some kind of blanket um, messaging it probably won't work right it just wouldn't make sense yeah. um you mentioned how previously republicans have used obama um to attack him and their ads and their campaign messages a hard pivot to the obama portraits you were there for the unveiling of it. Was it on Monday? I was not there. You were not there. Okay. So so I obviously am super into, if anyone has looked at my tweets from this week, the portraits, which have come with no surprise with some controversy from conservatives like Sean Hannity, which like I still don't understand that, but we'll talk about that soon. Um, you said before we started the show that you have a lot of thoughts on the Obama portraits. So I want to hear all of them. First things, I want to note that it was like a perfect example and reminder that the way people I think now you have certain people on the left who anything and everything Trump says or is even remotely associated with is bad and the worst and it drives them mad the exact same applied to a lot of people on the right when it came to Obama right. and this was a good reminder that that was a thing and that they you know just drives him mad it drove Sean Hannity, Sean Hannity mad. Right. Art. And Art. People getting upset about yeah, that. You know, like so many people were mad online at a, <laughs> at a painting. What? It's 2018 and people are mad online? Like. No. I, yeah, I just didn't get it. And and people were like, it does, you know, the Michelle Obama, it doesn't look like her. And I knew of Wiley uh, who painted mm -hmm. Barack Obama mm -hmm. before. Uh, I didn't know of Amy Sherald who painted uh, Michelle Obama's, but I've, right. I've looked at some of her work and. You know, like she paints skin gray um, and people are like, why is that? Urgh. And it's like, 
you know, it's just her right. style. And like, do you know why she does that? Is it a, like a racial commentary or something? I, you know, I read a couple of interviews with her and mm -hmm. it, you know, it kind of seemed like that. She only paints African-Americans. Mm -hmm. She also said that she only paints people that she can, where she can see something that no one else can see. Hmm. And I think that was a good uh, example of, you know, people are like, it doesn't really look like her. Well, it's, it's not, you know, the painter doesn't care what you think. Right. It's, you know, how the artist sees the subject. Right. And that's I, I think that's a lot of people didn't pick up on that. Right. Um, and well, the interesting thing about Michelle Obama's portrait is like on first look, the her dress is sort of like the main focal point, right? Like obviously the color contrast between the gray skin and the white dress with different colors on it um, draws your eye to it. It's also a lot larger, I think, like in proportion. It's a much bigger, poofier dress. Um, I think that is a staple of her artistry or no i'm not sure i think that i was reading something about how she typically focus on focuses on the clothing yeah i i've looked at a couple other of her works and there's there's a great one where it's a it's like a young boy mm -hmm. and he's wearing like an american flag button down shirt and a cowboy hat but they all have hmm. that kind of bright background interesting with like gray skin yeah um and they all look really amazing and she's a relatively unknown or artist so right. you know this will catapult her into a new dimension right? Uh, by choosing her. Whereas Wiley is, you know, world famous. Um, mm -hmm. You can see, like, and I, the one thing I liked about him is that I like a lot of, you know, Renaissance and Baroque stuff. And, you know, that's what he does is he adapts a lot of, you know, Renaissance themes and, you know, puts them with contemporary people. Right. Um, like, people were upset that there were, uh, he painted, you know, um, black women beheading, you know, a white woman. Right. That's a recreation of Judith beheading Holofernes, um, which is very common in Renaissance paintings. Uh, right. He's also painted, you know, a lot of Madonna and Childs, which, you know, everyone knows from the Renaissance. So it wasn't this big deal. People were like, oh, my gosh. But when you look at his themes, he, you know, he puts um, mostly African-Americans and, you know, modern people in you know, classical Renaissance and Baroque styles and poses that, right. you know, were big centuries ago. Right. And it's uh, so the first time that I encountered one of his paintings, it was randomly in Montreal at the Museum of Fine Arts. And it just was like this massive painting of this black man who was shirtless and like his pants were sagging a little bit. It was like all the stereotypes negative stereotypes or things that people associate with negativity of black men. He had tattoos all over his body, but they were sort of like seemingly random tattoos or like of pop culture like one that was like the rolling stone logo masthead across his stomach um but the background was just this beautiful similar to an obama's portrait this beautiful like almost leaf-like um uh, background that was pink and orange and yellow and it was just like a stunning contrast between like this this sort of bucolic scene in the background and then this like african-american man who was shirtless with his pants sagging and it really makes you sort of like confront those two things that are seemingly at odds um but that was the interesting thing about obama's is like it was this similar bucolic background but obviously the former president in a suit with you know sort of a stern look on his face leaning forward so it's a little more inviting some say um but there was like less of that contrast but people were still upset about it yeah, well, I, and it goes back to what I said, you know, people are especially like on the right or with Trump on the left, mm -hmm. you know, they'll just be upset with anything and everything. 
Right. Um, and people are saying, you know, it's not traditional. Well, if you go to the portrait gallery, um, which I highly recommend everyone does, they also have another Wiley there of uh, his portrait of LL Cool J. Mm-hmm. Um, if you see, you know, they're they're actually not. The one of Bill Clinton is like this weird-looking mosaic-style painting, hmm. and it makes Bill Clinton look like a giant clown. Um, there are actually a lot of unique paintings there. Right. Um, the George Washington one, you know, they have like, for instance, the background on Obama's, there's uh, flowers from Hawaii, flowers, uh, the flower of Chicago. Mm-hmm. Um, in George Washington's, there's, you know, things behind his desk. He's holding a sword um, from his military days. Right. So, like, they... It's actually not that far off. It's just with a modern artist, which I don't think a lot of people understood. Right. And people take art way too literally. Yes. You know, there were yes. like... Suddenly everyone online is an art critic. Yeah. This is also something that Obama has said made him choose Kehinde Wiley is because um, his portraiture challenges the idea of privilege and power and the dichotomy between the two, essentially. We have some audio of him saying that, actually. But what I was always struck by when I, whenever I saw his portraits was the degree to which they challenged our conventional views of power and privilege. That's fascinating. And, and something, like, obviously he said that in a much more articulate way than me talking about the contrast between the background and, like, the, back, the black men in the foreground. Um, but, like, that's what's harder to suss out. And I haven't spent a lot of time reading the people who have been mad online about this. And I should to try to figure out, like, why it is that they are so upset, right? Like, you, you argue that it's people on the right who just don't like Obama and anything associated with him they won't like. But, like, is there a racial aspect to this? Is there something more? Like, maybe not even race. But, like, is there something other than just it being Obama? Is it maybe that it is considered to be non-traditional compared to others? Is it... Because it's the first African American artist who has painted a presidential portrait. Like, have you been able to identify any other reasons or trends in why people are upset about it? Um, there's a certain degree of that. I mean, depending on you know how deep of a hole you dig into the internet. <laughs> um, you I, have a lot of free time. I I, I, I think that uh, people would a, a lot of people on the right would have been upset with any portrait at all painted of Barack Obama. They would have been mad no matter what. They would have found something to get mad about um, or found ways to make fun of it. Um, But, you know, I think that it it was so bright, too. Um, Yes, yeah. It's such, like, there's a Kennedy one in the portrait gallery that's really bright, and it's um, throwing a blank on the artist, but... You know, it's 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 visually striking, mm-hmm. and that obviously like draws a lot of emotion to to people right. because you know they th- you know they're they're shocked that you know something is out of the norm, which Obama very much was. Right. So obviously, it might upset people. Um, also, you know, a thing about Wiley is that, um, and back to the quote that was played of Obama, um, he the the poses that a lot of uh, his subjects pose in are recreations of uh, Renaissance poses. So that's the way it kind of, you know, redefines uh, privilege or class or, you know, you know, they're in very powerful poses that were traditionally reserved for very wealthy people in Italy or France or Germany or you name it. Right. Um, I would be curious to know, like, how many people who are upset about this have heard that clip from Obama or know that about Wiley's work, that it, it 
presents that challenge between privilege and power. But not a lot. Probably not a lot, right? I, I mean, I didn't necessarily know that either. Um, but I, did you follow any of the Sean Hannity stuff? So I like briefly saw it and then saw. The, I mean, I guess I can let you explain if you know well, it. I don't know if it was real. So at Sean, the end of it all, Sean Hannity has his own website. Um, and right. they produce like articles, uh, like blog posts, they repackage news and stuff and none of them are ever byline. It's always by Hannity's staff. And one of them claimed that there was like a secret drawing of sperm on Obama's forehead. Right. Which and, like they zoomed in on the photo. Yeah. It's a vein that's like popping out of his forehead yeah. that is in the shape of what a sperm looks like, I guess. But like, yeah, it was... It was a stretch, and it was very weird, and right. everyone was like, what is going on? And then Hannity's website took it down and <laughs> deleted the article, and he deleted his tweet that was like, wow, sexual innuendo. <laughs> and it was just like, I think that was the peak of outrage. Yes. Uh, and people yeah. were just like, okay. Right. And then, well, Hannity said, like, someone from his staff wrote it without him knowing or checking with him first, and he had nothing to do with it, which, like, maybe that's the case. Um, that was just like a very weird moment. That was the one time that I like almost allowed myself to be mad online about it. But instead I tweeted like a petty passive aggressive thing that was like, you know, was going to tweet about this Hannity thing, but instead we'll wish everyone a black, a happy black history month. Yeah. I, you know, I didn't like get mad at it, at the reactions, especially the Hannity one. I laughed. I was like, you are nuts and laughed. But <laughs> yeah. What I got kind of mad about was the people that were upset with uh, Wiley's other work, especially mm. the, the beheading ones. Mm-hmm. Um, anyone who's taken Art History 101 knows that beheading is an extremely common theme. Um, and if you notice, you know, like like I said, he does a lot of Madonna and Childs, you right. know, where, you know, it'll be like a small boy with a mother. Um, and, like, if you took 10 seconds to Google, like, why he paints things he does, um you would know that they're just drawing off of themes from the Renaissance, you know? Right. He's not the first person to paint someone beheading someone. Right. Um, tons did in, right. you know, 17th and 18th century. Right. Um, I think that would be a worthy experiment for, or practice for a lot of people to do is just, like, Google, like you said, take 10 minutes and it, Google it and see. For anything you get mad about, just take 10 seconds to Google it and be like, oh, it's not... That is not that bad. That is a great life lesson, not only for people who are mad about these Obama portraits, but as like for literally anything, yeah. especially in the current political climate. Joe, thank you for joining us. What are you working on today? Anything interesting? Uh, I'm interviewing California Congressman Ro Khanna. We're going to talk about a handful of things, uh, mostly economics. Nice. That's my bread and butter. And people can find that article later today on businessinsider.com. Joe Perdicone, thank you. Thank you for coming in. Happy Friday and good luck with your interview. Thank you for having me. We'll see you later. Um, so thank you everyone for watching today. Again, I'm Alexi McCammon filling in for the great Bill Press of the Bill Press Show. We had amazing guests today, Dara Lynn from Vox. We talked a lot about immigration. You can follow her work on Vox.com. Joe Perdicone, obviously, businessinsider.com. And Addie Bear from Think Progress, who is covering a lot about the midterm. So follow along with her for the next, as we said earlier, 263 days. Uh, we will see you next time and appreciate you all joining us. Happy Friday and have a great weekend. This 
is the Bill Press Show.